0: So we're going to continue looking at the book of Genesis, and uh, so I'd invite you to turn there, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, uh, probably one of the most familiar parts of the Bible, uh, and even if you're not familiar with your, your scriptures, you've, you've heard this uh, amazing chapter before, so now hear God's word. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her. where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the woman Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground out of which you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You might wonder why uh, we're looking at Genesis, and I've tried to explain over the past few weeks that if you understand the first three chapters of Genesis, just the first three chapters... If you really go down and dig deep into it and and really figure out what Moses was trying to tell the people of Israel, and then by extension, all other people that followed them, if you can find out what he's talking about, the Bible, the whole Bible, will start to make a lot of sense. And you'll start to see that the Bible is not simply history, it's not just telling you events that happened. It is recalling history, but very specifically certain things about history that will then inform you of why things are the way they are. Not how they were made. It's not. It, in fact, I told you last week, science has nothing to say about the metaphysical realm, about the spiritual world. Nothing. Science cannot put anything spiritual into a test tube and experiment on it. It has nothing to say. So when Richard Dawkins or Chris Hitchens or any of the other fellows out Sam Harris, any of the other fellows out there that are big-time atheists, they say the Bible has has been disproved by science, they are making a faith statement. They're not saying anything that's scientific or empirically true. So you can just dismiss whatever they say. Now, they do raise some interesting questions, and I think we have some good answers to those. At the same time, we must be careful not to take our Bible and make it scientific and speak to scientific things and try to say the Bible saying this is how God made the world. That's not what it's saying. It is not about material or scientific origins at all. In fact, if you study your Bible, it h- hardly talks about science At all. And so to force it to do that is to wrench it from its original meaning, which is the first mistake that people make when they try to understand their Bible. They try to just take it out of context. And I'm telling you, I'm imploring you, that if you want to understand your Bible, you've got to leave it in the context of Moses and the ancient Near East and what it was written, why he wrote it, What was his purpose? Find out what that purpose is. And then you can make the the extrapolations to the modern day, which we've done each week and I will do again this morning. The book of Genesis tells us very simply why things are the way they are. And every one of you has asked those questions at some level. And your children, depending on their age, they're going to be asking those questions. They're going to be asking you, why did this happen or that happen? Why is there so much evil? Why is there suffering? If you're a human being, you've asked those questions. Why has my life taken this direction? Or why am I so blessed? How come everything goes well for me? I don't know. Whatever it is, this book answers those questions. And it does it, interestingly enough, in the first three chapters and chapter 4, which we'll look at in a few weeks. So we're going to spend some time in chapter 3, and I'm going to take it in in sections. So this morning we're just going to look at 1 through 7. We're going to look at the deception that the serpent brought into the world. Life's biggest questions, the biggest questions that you can think of, are addressed in this book. And in this chapter, some of the biggest questions about the world around you, both physically and metaphysically, are addressed. Now, I'll tell you very quickly, some of the answers that they give and some of the things that they say that Moses and his, his uh, uh, group of men who are putting together this material for the people of Israel aren't going to satisfy you in the modern world, modern mind. And that's too bad, because in another 200 years, you will be the ancient world, and there will be a new modern world. But in that new modern world, this will continue to make sense. Whereas, if you confine it, it won't. So, the Holy Spirit was brilliant in the way He formed and, and put this together. And so you find the story of this serpent, who's in the garden. There's no explanation. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what he's doing there. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know anything about him. Now, you can go into other parts of the Bible and you can say, well, it's it's Satan. And yes, it is. We find out much later that it's Shaitan, the devil himself, that is present in the garden. What he's doing there. The Bible just simply doesn't explain. Now you can say, well, he was cast out of heaven and there was this and that. And we get some of that from other places. But right now, Moses is talking to a group of people who are on the plains of Moab. They're marshalling their forces and they're going to invade the land of Canaan and what Moses has been telling them is he's saying God has invited you to re-enter the garden of Eden the land of Canaan the land that is flowing with milk and honey and here's why we're going into the land of the the garden this is why we're going in we're going to go in and crush the serpent's head, and we're going to retake the garden, and we're going to build the temple of God there because that's where God's temple was originally. We're going to retake, we're going to reconquer the land, and this is why we're here. The whole reason we're here. And that has a lot to say about us now, but we'll get to that in a minute. This is why you're here. We're going in to address the serpent Now, people would have asked then, well, what's the serpent doing there? But in that world, they knew what the serpent was. They knew it was the devil. They knew it was an evil force, a malignant, malicious force that was the anti-God. He was a symbol of the anti-God. He was a symbol of the accursed adversary of God and humanity. They already knew that. Everybody knows that. Even people that don't believe know there's something evil out there that's going on. This can't possibly be the way it is because we are conscious and we know something's wrong. It's innate, part of the imago Dei. It's part of the image of God that He's planted in every human being. I don't care what your religious persuasion is. Everybody knows something's not right. But the serpent is not mythological. It is not a myth that he's telling us. He's telling us true history, but he's doing it in a way that is filled with symbolism that transcends science and speaks to generations no matter what they are, who they are. It will explain why there is a malignant force in the world, how it got there, we don't know. Why it's here, we're not completely sure, but we know that it's here and we know that we have to do something about it. We know we do. And what does he use? I don't know if you noticed, but how many times, if you have a Bible and you mark in your Bible, one of the things you should mark is how many times Moses expresses in this particular text say or say, Heard or speech, just the idea of speech. And if you go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you will see that speech, words, play a huge part in God's story. He creates the world. We don't know how. We don't know if it was six 24 hour days or if it was something else. That is not what's being addressed. What is being addressed is that He did create the world and He did it by His word, simply by speaking. And by his spirit, moving over the face of the chaos and the, the the formlessness and the void of the of the universe, and bringing order to it, and he did it by his word, and we Christians and the people of ancient Israel and even the Jewish people today call themselves people of the Word. we reverence our Bibles, we mark in them with pencils which. If you know anything about Islam and Quran you if you mark in your Quran you they'll kill you. You don't do that because it's sacred. But we do we mark in our bibles we understand that it is a, a device of communication to us. But we are people of the word and we are people of the spirit. And so look at how prevalent speech plays in the in the world of The serpent. Look at verse 1. It says that the serpent was more crafty. The Hebrew word means shrewd, or, you know, not that he was was evil, but just that he was smarter, in some sense, more wise, more knowledgeable of things than the human beings themselves. He was more shrewd than any beast the Lord God had made. And God had given humanity speech to create, to fill, to form, to create beauty and diversity and abundance. Adam was given the power, the authority to name the animals. And you know, later on he names his wife Eve, the mother of the living. Adam was saying something about their future based on what God had done for them in this chapter. But the serpent, look at what the serpent does. He uses speech to introduce confusion and chaos and doubt. Notice that the serpent cannot create anything. The devil cannot move stuff around. He has no ability to do anything other than lie and deceive. And yet in Hollywood and other places, you know, we give him all kinds of power. He becomes almost an equal force to God. If God can lift the table, levitate the table, the devil can too. And we mistake what he really is. And Moses says, he's just a beast of the field. He's crafty, he's shrewd, he's wise, and he's telling the people out there on the plains of Moab, when we go back into this land, do not listen to him. Why would he say that? Because the land was filled with Canaanites, the descendants of this this whole debacle in chapter 3. They were not the descendants of the serpent, as some people have heretically said. They weren't descended from Satan, but they listened to him. And Moses saying, We're going to go in there, do not listen to them. Guess what they did? Guess what the rest of your Bible is about? They listened to him. The only one that listened to him and then answered him and said no, was who? Jesus our Lord. He had the sense, thank God, and thank him because he's also God, to say no. He listened, he heard what the devil had to say, and he said no. But humanity's been listening ever since. That's why you have a Bible. That's what the whole thing's about. It's about the craziness of listening to this serpent who is a liar. He's more crafty. He's, 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 he uses speech to confuse, to deconstruct, to unfill. To bring back tohu v'bohu. To bring back the chaos, the void, the, the, the emptiness and the void, the formless. To lie. God had to nothing but tell mankind truth. That's all He had ever given us. And that's all He gives us today. He never lies. He never tempts. The tree of knowledge and good and evil was not a bad tree. He did not put it in the garden to test them and tempt them and try them in some uh, malicious way. He gave them a gift. He said, I'm going to give you the ability to choose. I'm going to give you the strength and the power to choose me, to love me, to follow me, to obey me just for me. Because I've provided this for you. I've provided the garden for you and the power and the authority and a companion to share it with and the world and everything in it. I've given it to you. Now just trust me. Love me. For me. The tree of knowledge and good and evil Eve looked at it and it described everything about it is good. There's nothing wrong with knowing what good and evil are. God knows what good and evil is. In fact, the book of Proverbs is filled with admonitions that we should know, we should be able to discern between right and wrong, good and evil. But why did God tell them not to eat from that tree? Because the knowledge of good and evil in the way that this is understood, the way this is described is they were going to take it When it was not for them, and they were going to appropriate it to themselves to gain something that God did not want them to have, one thing. It wasn't eternal life He was taking away from them. He was taking away from them the knowledge of evil in the way that it would affect them, that it would change them. In that day you will surely die, and dying you will die. He uses a double. He says, you're going to die, die. And the serpent uses speech. And look at the progression. This is very important. Number one, he uses, first of all, he's very crafty. Remember, he's crafty. And so what the Canaanites are going to do to you, Israelites, when we all get in there, what they're going to do is they're going to start questioning our God, and comparing Him to the other gods. You with me? This is so important, I can't even, you cannot overstate this. Deadly important. They faced it. They were going to go into a land where they're going to live in a pluralistic society. They didn't kill everybody like they're supposed to, of course. And so what happened is, they're living in America. In the 21st century, they're living in a pluralistic land, and you're hearing every day lies and lies and lies. Don't listen to them. They're going to question. They're going to say, Did God actually say you can't have any tree in the garden? The question is this let me be very frank with you, and, and uh, although my name's Chuck, I'll be frank. Alright, that's not a very good joke. It's like, kind of like airplane. Don't call me Shirley. Okay. Anyway, the question that Satan asks does this. It leads us to the assumption that God's word is uh, up for grabs. In other words, it's, it's subject to your interpretation. That is a huge problem. I don't know if you all realize it. Because how often every day, I mean, we look around us and we say, okay, I'm going to go do this thing right here. And eh, I, I have a good heart. I'm, I'm really a good person. And after all, God will forgive me. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And I know he didn't really mean that. He didn't really mean it. Well, you know, even if he meant it, he really didn't mean it. We minimize it. And we relativize it. And on the other side of it, the other side of it is death for you. And so when your pastor lovingly scolds you for committing sin and tries to warn you, I want you to say thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Take me to coffee or something. I mean, I know. I've been scolded by God. I was scolded this morning, for goodness sakes. I got up at 5 o'clock and He scolded me. Going, why do you do that to me? I've got to go preach to these people. I've got to act holy this morning. Why? But you know, if He didn't come in and speak to us about our things and tell us no, like we would our children, what would He be? Nothing. Certainly wouldn't be a father to you. He loves us and He was saying. Don't do that. Don't put my word under your microscope and you decide what's good. You decide what sex you are. You decide who you're going to love, whether it's a, a male, a female, or, or something with too much hair, you know, like a, 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 a dog or a cat that you're going to be in love with these things and you're going to give yourself to them. You, you can't define for yourself what's right and wrong. I define. You cannot decide between good and evil because I know good and evil and you can't handle it you can't handle the truth that's my best Jack Nicholson uh, see nobody in this church knows that because you haven't watched that movie have you and you won't admit it in here you can't handle the truth we can't handle knowledge of good and evil so he says don't bother with that just no good I'll give you good everything's very good look trust me trust me he's telling the Israelites on the plains of Moab Trust me, we're going to go in and fight these Canaanites. It's going to be rough, going to be bloody, going to be horrific. And they've got powerful gods. Those gods are very tempting. They're very sexual. They're very uh, powerful when it comes to material things. And so we're going to go in there, don't listen, don't listen, don't listen. They're going to distort. They're going to lie. They're going to question. Did your God, do you have Torah? Do you have the real word of God? And then in verse 2 and 3, look. Eve answers him. It's okay. She's discussing with Jesus, did the same thing. And she says this. Now, be very, very cognizant of what she says and what she doesn't say. It's fascinating. I have been telling you this, folks, for over 15 years. 16. Here's what she says She distorts. You see, he questioned. Then she distorts the word of God. And here's how she does it. We may eat of the fruit of the trees, but we shall not eat from the tree in the midst. So far, so good. She's on track. Then she says, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And she is doing exactly what people have done From time immemorial, from the first day that Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets, people have taken the law of God, have taken the word of God, and we make two errors. And I've told you this. And if you don't learn this, you will never be able to negotiate your way through this text, the entire text of the Bible. We either say too much or we say too little. The people that say too much are people like us in this room. We are serious about the Bible, so we're going to say stuff that it, even, that it doesn't even say just to be sure that we don't break any law, which is what the Pharisees and the rabbis did in Jesus' time. They said more than it said, and he hated that. That was the thing that really got him, made his hands hair stand up. And he would get angry. That's what he was angry about. You're saying too much. Your traditions, your man-made traditions. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. Rules and rules and rules and more rules. And how to wear your hair and don't have a bone in your nose and don't have earrings and don't have tattoos and don't do this and don't do that and don't do something else until it becomes too much. And in America, oh my gosh, the church in America, we've got rules beyond rules. We love rules. The rabbi, when we were three years at, at the synagogue, you know, they asked us to keep kosher. That was, I mean, if you come on our property, keep kosher. And there was uh, something else. So we had to observe the, the Sabbath. We had to be out of the building on Friday by three. And I mean, we followed it scrupulous to the where the rabbi Bach came to me and he says, you know, you Christians, are, you're better than my own people. They break every rule I give them. You guys, I said, I said, Rabbi Bach, you have no idea. Christians love rules and give me more. Pile them on. And we keep them scrupulously and then we pat our backs and we say, oh, I'm doing what God wants. No, you're not. You're fooling yourself. She says, too much, neither shall you touch it. That's too much. And then she says, lest you die. She left out, lest you die, you surely die. You certainly will die. You will die, die. She leaves that part out. She distorts the word of God. She made no mistake. Don't don't think that she was naive and she's just a you know a dumb blonde. What did I say that for? I'm in so much trouble. My beautiful blonde wife. Okay, now I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm seeing if you're awake. All right, look, she's not just a dumb woman, a dumb person. No, she knew exactly what good and evil were, and she knew that she wasn't supposed to do it, But she minimized it. You see, there are people out there that take the Bible; they say too much. There are people out there that take the Bible and they say too little. They just erase whole portions. Oh, you can't believe that—it's mythology. And well, you can't believe that miracle. I mean, you know, they crossed the Red Sea, but it was only two feet deep, and yeah, the whole Egyptian army drowned in that two feet. Good luck with that. That's a bigger miracle than splitting the Red Sea. I mean, you know, you can go on and on and on. They say too little. They minimize or they say too much. And I have pled with you folks, read your Bible, take it on its own terms, and whatever it says, that's what it says. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. Alright, then look at verse 4. They contradict. He comes right back bold as brass. It's really pretty, pretty amazing. But this is what we do and what he did and what, what the Israelites ended up doing that led to the whole rest of your Bible, for goodness sakes, up to Revelation chapter 21. The serpent said, you will not surely die. Notice he quotes God exactly. He does not distort the word of God. He does add surely back in. He challenges God with impunity, bold as brass, a bare, flat, Bold face, contradiction, arrogance just dripping. And guess what the first doctrine, listen, this is why you don't, this is why churches like Christ the King do not have 10 services and millions of dollars. I'm going to tell you right now honest truth. Because the first doctrine to be challenged, the first one that suffers is the doctrine of God's Judgment. That if you sin, you are going to put your life at risk of death. Now, I'm a Presbyterian minister and I'm bound to uphold this Bible and I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God and so if you sin, you will die. You will die physically, you will die spiritually and at the, at the end of days, in the second death, you will die eternally. Sin will kill you. And not not just any sin. I mean, not big sins. Any sin. Will kill you. Will destroy you. And you will be judged. And God's judgment was sure. The day you eat, you will die. You will surely die. You will certainly die. You will die, die. And he meant all of it. In fact, when they asked Augustine which death was it, Augustine said, all of them. Bodily death, spiritually death, and eternal death. You'll die. So when we talk about sin, and we do talk about sin in our church, it is deadly serious. It's nothing to trifle with. You just don't fool around with it. You run from it with all your might. But your whole Bible is about what, folks? If you've read any other part of your Bible, you know that we have failed that. We didn't inherit our sinful nature. We got it all on our own. Because every day we sin. And we do it bold as brass sometimes. Then look at number 5, verse 5. He deceives using God's word to introduce an alternate truth. You're gonna, this happens every day in our culture. It happened then in, in, when they went into Canaan, when they went in, they killed most people they could and they did all kinds of stuff, but they started to compromise with the culture and for profit sometimes, for expediency, for lots of reasons, they started to equivocate, to soften God's original judgment and what it led to was an introduction of an alternate truth. And this is what Satan tells Eve. God knows, look at verse 5, God knows the day when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Every word of that is true. Every word that Satan told her about knowledge of good and evil was true. What did he do though? He didn't tell her the whole story. He just told her part of the story. Yeah, you'll be like God alright. You're going to know good and evil, but you're not going to be able to handle it. It is going to kill you it's going to put you to death listen to what one commentator said Derek Kidner is one of the little commentaries I'm using fantastic the climax is a lie big enough listen to this big enough to reinterpret life itself the lie is big enough to reinterpret life itself what it does is it brings in a false system, an alternate truth that we begin to vacillate. Well, maybe I can be, maybe I can manage good and evil. Good and evil is, is in my life, but I can manage it. I can balance it. I'll balance it out. You know, I'll do something bad, I'll sin, but hey, I'll go out and work really hard and I'll do something good. I'll give some money to the church. You know, when, when uh, Simon Magnus, the, the uh, sorcerer, offered Peter money for the gift of Holy Spirit, he said, I'll give you money. Do you know what Peter said to him literally in Greek? He said, you and your money can go to hell. You know, We, we downplay it a little bit because we you know, your money perish with you. What does that mean? No, he told him, you and your money are going straight to, you know. Judgment is real. It's frightening. It's terrible. It does not attract lots of people. And in America, we hate it. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. The Constitution says I'm free. And you know what? The Constitution says you're free about certain things, not free about others. But God is the boss of everything. Amen? Isn't he the boss of everything? I mean, really? Just because we can legally do something in our culture doesn't make it all right. Okay. Okay. Quickly. The climax is big enough to reinterpret life itself. It's dynamic enough, in other words, it's powerful enough to redirect the flow of our affections and our ambitions. In other words, it has the power, the dynam, dynamism to actually change what we love, our motives, our heart, our nature. It corrupts us, it does incredible damage. Look quickly at the disloyalty of humanity and then we'll close. The, the Verse six is, uh, our, our Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul used to say that the question that we are all going to ask, the first question, when you get to heaven, you're going to have lots of questions and you get into God's presence, you're going to have a whole list of questions. But this is the one we're probably all going to ask first. Why did Eve do what she did? That is the mystery that I don't know if anybody can answer. The question. Listen to this. Also from Dr. Kidner's commentary. This is so stunning that I, ca- I still can't get over it. But listen to this. She saw. She took. She ate. So simple the act. So hard the undoing. God in the person of Jesus will taste poverty and death before the words take and eat will be verbs of salvation. Do you get it? She took and eat and it killed her. We are you in this church. We are invited to come taste and eat. Why does this give us life? Because Jesus tasted death for every one of us. So simple the act. So hard it's undoing. Not until Jesus experiences death. Tasting and seeing means life. Not until then. To resist God is moral evil. It's to your own detriment. It takes your life away. And look at verse 7. Their eyes were opened. They knew... They were naked. Now, pay attention, folks. They eyes were opened, and what did they know? They didn't know good and evil. That was the whole point. They took it. Well, hey, we're going to be knowing. Well, yeah, we're going to get good and evil. We're going to know. We're going to be like God. We're going to be like all the stuff, all the glories that were inherent in that tree. And that tree was not a bad tree. There's nothing evil about the tree. But what did they get? They got nothing but naked. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen people naked, primarily myself. It's horrifying. (laughs) And I don't care, but, you know, you can go and look at any pictures. They've been photoshopped. Nobody looks good naked. Nobody. You're just not looking close enough. And we all know that. And so we cover. They knew they were naked. And then the Hebrew, it actually just, it starts to pulse with the the way that it's written. The words come out and they say, they knew, they sowed, they made themselves, they hid, they went, they did. It's It's just... screaming at the reader. Guilt. Listen to this. We're going to talk more about it. We're going to spend several weeks on this because it's just too important. And I want you to get it because the grace of God will absolutely become blistering in your life. It will just blister you with love and goodness. It will vibrate through every cell of your body if you understand this. That guilt transgressing God's law, breaking His law, committing a sin, is an event. It's you doing something bad. And you say to yourself when you do the event, I did something bad. Shame, however, nakedness, a whole different animal. That one springs up almost immediately, simultaneously with the guilt and shame says not only did you do something bad, but you're bad. You're no good. You yourself. You've lost the Imago Dei. You're gone. You're done for. God will never ever forgive you for that guilt and we start thinking of ways because that's what they did we start thinking of ways to deal with the guilt and to deal with the shame Uh, the guilt maybe I can pay maybe there's something I can give to God to pay for that but what does the text say they're naked what does a naked person have they don't even have a wallet Where would they keep it? Where would you put your quarter? You're naked. I know it's funny, but really, think. I got nothing here. I don't even look that good. I have nothing to offer. I'm naked. I can't pay. And not only that, something's happened to me. I'm not the same. I know I'm naked, I know I'm uncovered. And the shame cuts us to ribbons. No value. No, so let, let the culture talk about self-esteem. They don't know what they're talking about. You know. You know what it is to live with you. I know what it is to live with me. And when I say it's not a pretty picture, I mean it. Not the outside. We can fake that the inside we can't touch, we can't fix, we don't have any money, we're naked, we're covered in shame, everybody tells us we're worthless, we try to fill it up with money and things and cars and looks and and prosperity and, and, and children and obeying God and coming to church, you name it, we have invented it. John Calvin said our hearts are Idol factories, we just constantly are producing idolatries to try somehow to pay the guilt, the fee we owe, and to cover that nakedness. We spend our lives doing it. Our ancestors, listen, our ancestors now understood. They knew evil in a personal way. They had known it before, but only outside of themselves. Now they had taken it in. Their nature was corrupted. They were dead. And they knew that they were dead. And their guilt, the transgression of the law and having committed evil, but being naked, they had nothing to pay. The result, shame. And therefore, our brilliant, brilliant human mind said, whoa, I'll sew fig leaves together. (laughs) Now let me tell you, the Israelites on the plains of Moab, when they read that or heard Moses tell that story, they actually laughed because they were not Presbyterians. They knew that was funny. The fig leaves were pathetic. But the instinct, listen, the instinct was sound. They did need to cover. The fig leaves, however, were pathetic. And from that point forward, folks, every chapter 4, we see the first sacrifices. People start making sacrifices because that is the only way they're going to be able to even come into God's presence. The only way. And He instituted it to protect them. Altars, then animals, then more sacrifices, then a tabernacle where they could do it all the time, every day, three, four times a day, and multiple times on holidays. And finally, a temple. And then, don't miss this. A final temple, a final altar, a final sacrifice, a final lamb. The law keeper was treated as a law breaker. The one who had been fully clothed with the glory and righteousness of God was brutally exposed, stripped, naked, covered with nothing but our shame. His life, his life had infinite value. Couldn't calculate what His value of His life. And God is saying to you, everyone in this room, you are valuable enough to me that I will spend my Son on you. I'll give you paradise. I'll give you Him. He's the paradise of God. He's the tree of life that we come and eat and drink from. And what Genesis is saying, before we even get into the rest of it, the first seven verses are saying, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him with your life? Judgment went on the head of the innocent so that grace and mercy could come on it. Who would not Who would not run to that and sacrifice everything if you had to to embrace it because you'll never find a love like that? Never. How do I stop sinning? Run to Jesus. And when you do sin, run to Jesus. And after you sin, run to Jesus. Run to Him every moment of your life. Never stop. He's already declared to you that you are valuable. Ultimate value. I'll spend it on you. Let's pray. Father, um, I do pray that you would help us to understand this amazing uh, message of truth just from these few verses. That we are living in a world that's filled with lies. People are lying all the time telling us, get this and get that. That'll make you okay. And the only thing that's ever going to make us okay is your son Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to embrace him to trust the Lamb of God who took our shame and our guilt both. Please help us. And as we come to your table, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith from the tree of life, the sacrament that brings life. Amen.